the Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2016 to Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos for his resolute efforts to bring the country's more than 50-year-long civil war to an end, a war that has cost lives of at least 220,000 Colombians and displaced close to 6 million people. The Norwegian Nobel Committee emphasizes the importance of the fact that President Santos is now inviting all parties to participate in a broad-based national dialogue aimed at advancing the peace process. Juan Manuel Santos was president of Colombia from 2010 to 2018. He came into power, like several presidents of Colombia before him, as the leader of a country at war. Santos had a reputation as a hawkish hardliner where the decades-long struggle with narco-terrorist revolutionary group FARC was concerned. As Minister of Defense in 2008, he authorized a raid into Ecuador to kill a FARC leader. But in 2016, Santos won the Nobel Peace Prize for bringing about the peace deal with FARC, which ended half a century of conflict. I'm Andrew Muller, and I spoke to Juan Manuel Santos for the big interview. President Juan Manuel Santos, welcome to the big interview. Thank you. It's a pleasure and an honor to be with you. I, I want to start with the, the, the headline, I guess, which is probably the thing you are best known for, which is the Nobel Peace Prize, which you won in 2016. I'm just curious as to how they tell you you've won it. Who makes that call? How do you find out? Well, it was a quite awkward uh, situation. Um, I was sound asleep. Uh, it was about three o'clock in the morning, uh, Bogota time. And uh, the person who I rescued when I was Minister of Defense, uh, Ingrid Betancourt, she heard the news. She was in Europe and she called my son. And my son called me, but I was in the presidential palace and I had instructions not to wake me up. And so they did not wake me up. And my son insisted, insisted until finally the telephone call got through and he said, Dad, you just won the Nobel Peace Prize. And I was so asleep, I said, oh, thank you. Uh, call me later and I hang up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And But he then insisted that, wake up, you just won the Nobel Peace Prize. And then I realized uh, that it was true. What do you do immediately after being told that? I mean, it's a, it's a question I'm not going to get that many chances to ask. And I suspect it's not a contingency I'm ever going to have to deal with personally. But what's the rest of your day like when that happens? Well, um, right after that call... Um, I received a call from the Nobel Committee uh, and uh, I answered the call and I thanked them for such an honor. Uh, they did a, a small interview and uh, then uh, everybody started calling. Uh, I called my wife and she was very excited. The rest of my family, they all came uh, to the presidential palace and we uh, started to digest uh, what just happened. 
Uh, it was a very important uh, moment in the peace process and in the Colombian political situation. I say that this uh, Nobel Peace Prize came like a gift from God at a precise and very opportune moment because we had just lost a referendum on the peace process. And this was, uh, in a way, understood by the Colombian people as a tremendous backing from the international community to the peace process. Okay, well, we will come back to the peace process, but for the moment, let's wind back a few decades, I guess, to the beginning of your journey towards the Nobel Peace Prize, because there was politics in your family. I think you had a great uncle who was a president and a cousin who was a vice president, but it wasn't necessarily inevitable because you did other things. You were a naval officer, you were an economist, uh, you could have been a newspaper baron, perhaps even a journalist, because, of course, your, your family owned El Tiempo. So... What was it about those careers that didn't quite grab you? I had decided to be a journalist. And uh, after I lived in London for about 10 years, I came back to Colombia and became deputy publisher of the newspaper. It's the most important newspaper in Colombia. And I was destined to be the publisher. Uh, and that was my future. But suddenly uh, I was uh, asked to become a, a minister of foreign trade. We were opening the economy in Colombia, and this is the first minister of open trade in the history of Colombia. Uh, the then president, uh, Gaviria, said, listen, you, uh, this is a great opportunity for you, but also for the country. Uh, we're going to change the economic model, and you're going to be responsible for that. And I had my doubts because uh, I was sacrificing a, a very, very important post, being publisher of the most important newspaper in Colombia is a very important uh, position to have. And I went uh, to somebody who I uh, really believe in, in his criteria, and he said something that was very important. He said, as a publisher of a newspaper, you're going to have tremendous influence all your life, and you're going to spend the rest of your life. But you're not going to have real power, the power to do things. That's only when you become a, a public servant and you can uh, sign executive orders and have things done. And you, he told me, you like to do things. You're destined to do things. So I suggest that you sacrifice your future in journalism and go into public uh, service and that advice uh, was important for me to take the decision to change my life from journalism to politics. So at what point then did you decide that one of the things you were going to do was one way or another address Colombia's civil war? Was that when you became defense minister in 2006 or before that? Before that. And it was a process, a process that started when I was in the Navy. I was, uh, I was given a, a small sailboat by an officer as soon as I arrived uh, as a, a recruit. And uh, he said, learn how to sail. And I had no idea. I almost drowned. And he, he uh, said, listen, in order to be a good sailor, you always have to know where you want to go. 
you have to have a, a, a port of destination. And that is applicable not only for the Navy, but for life in general. Uh, that lesson, um, I, uh, I really appreciated, but it was in the back of my mind. And uh, when I became Minister of uh, Trade, I went to sell Colombia to the international investors. And I was in New York in a conference uh, trying to uh, promote investment in Colombia. And in the middle of the conference, there was uh, news of a big bomb in uh, Bogota, huge bomb in a commercial center. Of course, the conference failed. And one of the CEOs told me, uh, listen, you have a great country, great potential, but as long as you have that war, nobody's going to invest there. And uh, I uh, took notice of that. And a few months later, I had to go to South Africa and give Nelson Mandela, uh, the chair of something called the United Nations Conference for Trade and Development. I was the chair and he had been elected chair, so I had to go and give him uh, the chair. And uh, we had a very long conversation, a very interesting conversation because I, I was asking uh, what, what was happening in South Africa because I had just seen in, in television, in real life, uh, the victims and the perpetrators uh, embracing or shouting each other. And, and I asked, what is this? And he, he started to explain the peace process. And at the end, he said, listen, you have a great country, but that country will never take off if you don't finish that war. And so I, I sort of uh, um, discovered uh, my port of destination. And, so, and I decided I'm going to work for the peace in Colombia for the rest of my life. And so I did. At that point, though, that must have seemed like the very definition of easier said than done, because this civil war by then has been going on literally for decades, nearly half a century. But when you become defence minister in 2006, is there part of you that still thinks that Colombia can win this war militarily? Did you think you could defeat the FARC, or did you think that at some point there would need to be a process? I always uh, thought that... Uh the war would end in a negotiating table. To, to defeat a guerrilla movement like the FARC, it was the oldest, strongest guerrilla movement in the whole of the Western Hemisphere, in a geography which is ideal for guerrilla warfare, and they had access to unlimited amount of resources from the drug trafficking. So to beat them militarily was very difficult. And I was convinced after studying what my predecessors had done and uh, studying other peace processes that uh, there were three conditions that were necessary for a successful peace process. First, to change the military balance of power in favor of the state, because as long as the guerrillas thought that they could win militarily, they would never negotiate in good faith. Second, to convince the leaders of the guerrillas, the commanders, that it was in their own benefit, personal benefit, to negotiate peace rather than to continue the war. 
And third, another condition which was necessary in any asymmetrical war today in this world is the support of your neighbors and the region and in the, the international community. And so these three conditions were necessary. And as Minister of Defense, uh, I uh, was quite successful in making war, but always with the idea of taking them to a negotiating table and negotiating peace. Because I knew that to continue and to think that we could wipe out the, the FARC to the last of their members, that would take 20 or 30 years more. And that was uh, simply not an option. Because you did take some very militarily aggressive actions during your time as defence minister, most famously, obviously, uh, the raid actually into Ecuador in 2008 that killed the FARC commander Raul Reyes, among others. At the time, was that part of that strategy? Did you think that this is part of a plan that will wear FARC down to the point that they will talk to us eventually? Yes. Yes, because I needed to go after the commanders. For 40 years, they had been untouched. And through different uh, military and intelligence strategies, we were able to start going after the, the commanders. And that was a tipping point, uh, because before uh, they thought they, they were invulnerable. And so, yes, it was part of the strategy to convince the commanders that it was in their own personal benefit to negotiate peace rather than to then continue the war. Were you concerned as well about the effect that waging this war was having on Colombia's own armed forces? Because there was, of course, around this period, what became known as the false positives scandal. Thousands uh, of people who weren't uh, FARC guerrillas were executed by Colombian soldiers who passed them off as FARC guerrillas. Was there a, a concern on your part that this was beginning to that prosecuting this dreadful, dirty, dangerous war was kind of corrupting the Colombian state and the Colombian military as well? Uh, right after I, I was appointed Minister of Defense, a retired general who was a very good friend of my father, he came to visit me. I had started to uh, implement a very aggressive uh, policy within the armed forces to respect human rights. And uh, I did that because uh, the most important asset any military force has is its legitimacy. And uh, you win your legitimacy by the way you act. And he came to me and said, this is very important what you're doing. This is what will really uh, make a change in the correlation of forces between the guerrillas and the armed forces. And he said something uh, very interesting. He said, don't consider the FARC your enemies. Consider them your adversaries. And I asked him, and what's the difference? And he said, enemies you simply destroy. The adversaries, you beat them. But you have to be able to realize that they are going to be your uh, your partners, your citizens, with whom you have to live with f 
for the rest of your life if you want peace as you I know you want it. So we started a very aggressive policy of, of uh, respecting human rights. I found uh, that the false positives were a fact. Uh, this was in, in a way brought uh, by copying the Vietnam theory of the body count. I stopped that completely and I changed the military doctrine. I said, from now on, I'm, I'm not going to measure and the government is not going to measure the effectiveness of any officer by the number of bodies, but by the number of members of the guerrilla who demobilize. Second, by the number of people that you capture. And third, and only if it's necessary, by the number of people who are dead. And so that changed completely the military doctrine, and we were able to get rid of these uh, false positives, which were a terrible thing, because the, they were uh, assassinations of civil pe uh, people who were presented as uh, members of the guerrillas in order to, uh, to get uh, some kind of reward. And that was awful, and that was a, a very bad uh, sort of stain in our military forces. But fortunately, we got rid of that. I want to ask you now about your decision to seek the presidency. It's a, it's a question I'm always interested to ask people who have attempted to become or become their national leader, because I think it's quite common among most people. You, you have those days of thinking, oh, if I was in charge, I'd do this, this and this. But for most of us, uh, the idea that we would ever end up actually in charge of our country seems entirely ridiculous. It's not even something that we would seriously entertain. So I, I want to ask you that question. What was the first moment at which you decided this should be me? I should be president? Well, when I became a Minister of Defense and I was considered a war hero because we did very well in terms of fighting the FARC and the guerrillas and the drug traffickers. And so I was very popular. But President Uribe, he was the president at that time, he wanted to be re-elected. And I said, well, if he wants to be re-elected, uh, he's the president. I had no sort of ambitions, even though I really wanted to pursue the path of seeking peace. And I started to see some signs from the president that were not uh, completely in accordance with what I thought should be uh, the policy, because he did want to wipe out the guerrillas completely. And I knew that that was not possible. But I was in a, in a very sort of awkward situation and suddenly the Constitutional Court told Uribe, you cannot be reelected. And there I saw the opportunity and I said, well, I'm going to run. And I decided to run and I got elected by a, largest amount of votes in the history of Colombia because of I, I was a, a war hero. But then after that, it was very difficult to change from a hawk to a dove and sit down with the guerrillas to negotiate. And many people told me, uh, you're going to be called a traitor. 
I remember a foreign minister from Israel, Shlomo Ben-Ami, who said, you're going to lose your political capital. You might even lose your life, like Rabin lost it in Israel when he made peace with Arafat. But it's the only way uh, that you will end that war. And I, I was convinced, and I said, I'm going to do it. And I started to implement uh, a plan that I had with the help of many people. And uh, fortunately, uh, it succeeded. Were there any moments, though, I guess especially early on after taking office, and, and you can be honest about this now, you're not president anymore, where you found yourself thinking, what have I got myself into? I don't actually know if I can do this. I mean, I think most people feel like that when they start any new job, but a job like that, the stakes are pretty high. Many times, many times, and I was, I was warned that that would happen. I remember a professor that I had uh, from the University of Harvard, Professor Hayfitz, he went down to Colombia and he said to me, you're embarking in a very difficult path and you're going to feel uh, that you want to throw in the towel uh, many times. And I advise you to talk to the victims, ask them uh, how they suffered their dramas. That will re-energize you. And I did that as a matter of discipline, like uh, you go and make uh, exercise every week. Well, I talk to a different victim every single week. And you cannot imagine how that helped me to maintain my stamina and my determination and to persevere. Because the, the dramas that I heard, but at the end, these victims tell me, President, you must persevere, you must continue. And I said, why are you so generous? Because uh, that means I have to give the guerrillas, the people who committed all these atrocities, some benefits, some benefits, uh, legal benefits. And they said something which really had an impact on me because we don't want others to suffer what we suffered. And that was a lesson of life for me. And that helped me to continue and to overcome this many, many very difficult moments that I had in all the process towards the the agreement. Any peace process, of course, and they they tend to be long and somewhat torturous, has to start somewhere. How difficult was that first outreach to the FARC? Where do you even begin to start with something like that? And I guess especially given the context that you had of being having been a previously pretty hardline defense minister, or I guess, sorry, I'm stacking one question on top of another here. Was that actually helpful to you, that the the FARC were more inclined to speak to you because they knew uh, that if necessary, you were quite capable and quite willing of prosecuting a military campaign? Yes, but previously, before I was minister, I had made some, some approaches to the FARC, to the other guerrilla movement, to the paramilitaries on the possibility of a peace process. So it was not new. It was not something which came out of the blue. I, I had contact uh, before. So when I became president, uh, I, in the inauguration speech, uh, I said uh, something like, the keys to the peace are not in the bottom of the sea. I have them in my pocket and I'm going to use them. That was a big surprise for many people because uh, 
I had been elected as a war hero, and to to start uh, talking about peace uh, was quite uh, uh, strange for many many people. But uh, since the very beginning, I knew that I wanted to do, to pursue that uh, path, and uh, I sent my brother, my older brother, a special envoy to talk to the guerrillas to tell them I am serious about negotiating peace. If you are serious, let's start a secret negotiation, which they accepted, and we talked secretly for almost two years and uh, made the agenda before we went public. Going public with something like that is always difficult, partly for the reasons you've talked about, that many people have suffered terribly and many people are understandably angry with a party to the conflict and they want that, if they don't want that party punished, they certainly don't want them rewarded. How careful did you need to be about framing it? Obviously, peace is a good thing and I'm sure most people in Colombia wanted it, but how sure were you of what people would be able to or willing to accept as the price of it? Well, that's a very, very important, interesting and difficult question because to try to frame a peace process, you, of course, think that everybody wants peace. And this is a natural thing to think. But uh, I underestimated the people who did not want peace or the people who were afraid of peace. There are many interests that are against the peace process. And I underestimated that. I will tell you a, a simple anecdote. We had agreed with the FARC after we went public that we would only make an announcement when we reached a partial agreement on uh, certain issues. And we will remain silent until the next agreement. Well, the enemies of the, par of the, of the process uh, started a campaign of, of fake news, of lies, of saying uh, that I was, go I was giving up uh, the private property and I was giving up the pensions uh, of the old people. Uh, and uh, people started to, to believe that. And we had to change our, our procedure in order to to counteract that. But you're always, always uh, susceptible to those uh, forces that want to sort of denigrate the peace process, to criticize the peace process, because it's very easy uh, to politicize the peace process because it's, it touches uh, so much the, the hearts of the people and uh, there's so many uh, wounds that are still open uh, that to manipulate the public opinion around the peace process is uh, rather easy. And I had to cope with that, and that was very difficult. All that being kept in mind, do you spend any time at all worrying about how you are seen now in Colombia? I mean, you left office with a 19% approval rating, which, which must have hurt a little bit. Well, I'll tell you something. Uh, there was a poll, big poll, among all the former presidents and the president, uh, which is right now president. And um, I am the most popular former president of 54% of uh, uh, favorability 
on top of the, the current president and all the former presidents. So um, history tends to to be uh, rather uh, just uh, with time. You stick around long enough, you'll come back into fashion. <laughs> no, I'm not, I am retired. I am retired. I am. I am uh, uh, dedicated to other things. Uh, I, right now, uh, of course, uh, the implementation of the peace agreement is very important for me, and uh, anything I can do uh, in order to help with the implementation, I'll be there. But I am very much uh, engaged with the environmental issues, uh, climate change. I have uh, uh, some boards that uh, of NGOs that are in in this uh, in this uh, sphere, and I am very happy because I think this is the most important challenge that the world has right now. Uh, if we don't address climate change, we will all perish. Juan Manuel Santos, thank you very much for joining me on The Big Interview on Monocle 24. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. Do look out for next week's episode in which I'll be speaking to the South African anti-apartheid activist Justice Albi Sachs. This episode of The Big Interview was produced by Yolin Goffan and edited by Emma Searle and Steph Chongu. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.